Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're getting down to the building blocks of life. No, not the mitochondria. That's the powerhouse of the cell. And not amino acids, which are also the building blocks of life. This week, we are exploring DNA. And while we will spend a little bit of time on the basic structure and function of DNA, just to make sure that all our listeners and Amber start off on the same page, what we're really going to be focusing on are two main ideas. <laughs> we're only going to do the D in the end. <laughs> a is for next time. So first, we're going to look at how the human genome encompasses all of the diverse physical variation that we see in the human population, how that factors into discussions of race, and how mainstream at-home DNA ancestry kits are a part of all that. Mm. So just just that little tiny subject mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then we're going to talk about ancient DNA and about what we know about our extinct relatives like Neanderthals and Denisovans so far. And then as a final little treat, I'm going to walk Amber through a couple of really mind-bending case studies that just show how incredible DNA is, how much we've learned in the past 20 years since the release of the human genome and how little we know. <laughs> the release? Like the release of the draft, the publication of the draft okay. of the human genome. Is the genome like what we have or is the genome the like recording of it? That's a good question. Uh, the genome is the all of the genes that are encompassed in human genetic diversity. So it's not the recording. The recording okay. is the, the publication or the draft, I suppose. Okay. The sequencing oh, okay. is, so, is the recording of it. So everything has a genome. But it might not have yet been sequenced. Correct. Okay. Yeah, every every living organism. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> I bet you can guess whose book club recommendation <laughs> this uh, this is. Um, it's not, not mine because I haven't read it, but I think maybe I will. We do have a, a book club recommendation for this episode, um, and it is a hefty one. But if you want an accessible and fascinating account of both the history of the study of the human genome and a summary of what we know about it, then we, specifically Anna, but I support her, <laughs> uh, recommend all 574 beefy pages, minus the glossary notes and citations, of <laughs> Carl Zimmer's She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Um, good plosives. Yeah. Um, good thing I got my pop filter on. <laughs> um, not only is it comprehensive, but it's a masterclass in science writing from one of the best in the biz. And if you want a different media experience, that you can go with my recommendation, which is probably why I still don't know much about DNA. Um, and this is something that I encountered way back in college. Um, but it will include it in the show notes because it's in the Internet Archive. 
the internet archive of like the Library yeah. of Congress because mm-hmm. it's of like cultural significance. And so it's called Protein sure Synthesis, is. an epic on the cellular level. Uh, and it's like absurd. Epic's a word for it. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, bonkers. And so it came out in 1971. And I think it was it was filmed. And in, you can tell. Oh, Oh, yeah. And so it's filmed on uh, Stanford University's campus. And so the intro is um, like this incredibly eminent uh, (laughs) scientist. Yeah. So the intro is like given by um, this guy who like happened to win the Nobel Prize, Paul Berg. And he's just like a like super last season of Mad Men looking guy. And he's Mm -hmm. got his like short sleeve buttoned down and White his shirt, like black tie. skinny tie and he's got like a mm-hmm. mid-atlantic accent he's just like i'm talking about DNA, and you're like okay and then it starts to <laughs> cuts to like a sort of like orth orth orthographic Sorry. view like what is that it's like bird's eye view okay i'll just say that so you're like looking down on this uh field writhing and, mass of humanity and, well that's the ribosome <laughs> And so it's like it, it is um interpretive dance and so it's de- it's protein synthesis interpreted through the medium of dance and there's a, a like a lady there's a lady reading a poem that was written in the style of the Jabberwocky <laughs> Brillig and the sli- ribosomes did yeah it's and, yeah it's like super weird and so she's doing this and then there's a there's music playing that it the performed by this like band like straight out of star wars <laughs> and um what's the title of the that title music, of the song is the protein jive sutra <laughs> like i'm obsessed with this uh, like i have loved this for like more than a decade and i'm so glad i'm sharing it with all of you and then like but the best part isn't the protein jive sutra it isn't the fact that this is produced by something called the senses bureau it's not the weird S-E-N-S-E-S, it's not the, the weird poem it's the fact it's not the dancing and like just like everybody and like at the end you just see everybody just like actively drinking wine like so they're just like all these like drunk i didn't even make it to that it's so good the best part is this like guy who's just like vibing out on the field and he's sort of like dictating like who goes next but he so she'll like do some poetry thing and be like and then the trna and then you've got this guy just like on the field yelling like trna And so he's just vibing. And so it is amazing. It's capital A art for sure. No, it's it's such it's such weird art. And then you know that this is like mm-hmm. I was like born knowing special. this existed yeah. like somewhere and it just took me years to find it. Um but I'm gonna put it in the <laughs> I'm gonna put it in the show notes. Um because it's just something it's like this Go is, experience this it. is what I thought academia was. Wow. This is like that what explains I, this is some things. This is what me. I thought I was going to get into and it wasn't. It. Mm. That's what I'm bringing to this episode. And you may notice mm, that we yeah. are like 7 minutes in and I'm <laughs> done contributing. Well, I'm just going to learn from here on out. Cuz that's all I know. Okay. All I know is just like guy yelling TRNA. Woo. Woo. Well, here we go. 
Well, first things first, let's do a brief primer premier. on DNA's structure. A uh, premier. Wait. <laughs> on DNA's structure and function. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid, and it's the molecule that stores the instructions for making all of the proteins that make up any given organism. Those instructions consist of strings of the four nitrogen bases, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And those are abbreviated A, T, G, and C. Are those amino Com- acids? No, they are nitrogen bases. Oh, so that's like a totally different thing. Mm-hmm. But this is clearly me being a product of the No Child Left Behind era. <laughs> I took a biology class. Okay. Well, I'm really hoping that this will be kind of a useful supplement for teachers to use. Yeah. You can just sort of tack this onto lessons about genetic stuff. Be like, hey. Yeah. Let, let people speak it to you. Learn, learn with this we, grown we woman that doesn't know anything about what's happening every second in her cells. Oh, God. Here we go. Oh, God. So combinations of those four letters, A, T, G, and C, are arranged in groups of three called codons. Each codon tells a cell to select a specific amino acid, the building blocks of life. And chains of codons correspond to chains of amino acids, which are proteins. In addition, there are specific... So proteins are made of amino acids. You stick a bunch of amino acids together in the right order, you get a certain protein. I know, and then the the lady with the butterfly wings comes through. Oh, boy. That's that's when it's time to release it. In addition... There are specific codons, this is the lady with the butterfly wings, that are start and stop markers. So a portion of DNA in terms of instruction for a cell would look something like start, amino, 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 stop. Okay. And then that's your finished protein. And proteins come in all different lengths and configurations depending on what their function is, and they're all put together based on the instructions in DNA. Okay. So- If DNA is, to use an imperfect metaphor, an instruction manual, then genes are the words. Because a gene is a segment of DNA, and a particular gene corresponds to some physical trait on the living organism. Sometimes, confusingly, one gene influences multiple traits. Oh, yeah. And sometimes, more confusingly, multiple genes influence a single trait. But the key is that all of the genes that tell an organism how to construct, maintain, and repair itself are contained in its DNA. Mm -hmm. So the structure of DNA, the molecule itself, is a double helix or a double spiral with two paired strands wound around one another. So picture a ladder, like a really stereotypical cartoon ladder with two side pieces and multiple rungs, and then grab it with your invisible mind hands and twist. Oh, I'm now rotating it in my mind. Okay, great. That's basically, so that's the shape of DNA is a a twisted ladder, basically. Shout out to Rosalind Franklin, who was instrumental in discovering this about the DNA molecule. She, with her research was really, without it, Watson and Crick would not have been able to publish what they did on the structure of DNA, but she received none of the credit at the time. And she died before she could share in the Nobel Prize that she should have received along with James Watson and Francis Crick. And she died of ovarian cancer. That was probably the result of the x-ray uh, the radiography that she was doing to to, to learn about the structure of what? DNA molecules. Yeah, so her research was basically firing X-rays at these molecules and and capturing essentially images of them, the same way that we capture X-rays now medically. 
Yeah. And she probably was exposed to too much of that radiation. So I always, when I, whenever I teach this, I always like to, to bring up her story because it's, it's really important. And was, uh, I think she should have. Was she a part of that team or was she, she was, was she working, working with separate? Watson and Crick. Okay. They took her research without, well, her, the person she was working with showed some of her research to Watson and Crick without her knowledge or permission. Um, and Watson and Crick were very um, dismissive of her. And so uh, they used her research uh, and didn't give her the credit that she deserved. Was she so, still yeah. alive when they got the Nobel Prize? No. And that's why they don't award the Nobel posthumously. And she had died before okay. it was awarded. Um, yeah. So look up her story sometime if you're interested. It's a good one. I yeah. mean, a sad one. Maybe we can, maybe we should include that in the show notes. Yeah. I'll find a source for that. Yeah. Wow. So mm-hmm. anyway, for this episode, we're sticking with human DNA. So keep in mind that any generalizations we make from here on are with the human genome in mind, not all the other genomes. DNA is an incredibly long molecule. If you unraveled a strand of it from its little chromosome bundles, it would be around six feet long, but thinner than a human hair, which is why it's in those tiny chromosome bundles to begin with. It's the equivalent of coiling your headphone cord nicely so it doesn't become a tangled nightmare, something I know nothing about. I have a question. (laughs) <laughs> shoot <laughs> i i read there that um you did no very that, nicely that, thank you that the that dna is thinner than a human hair yes is it visible i remember seeing something somewhere possibly on bill nye possibly in my high school biology textbook that looked like a science person pulling dna and it looked like almost like super thin fishing line and I was like, is this art or is this actually DNA? I think to actually really examine it, you have to go on a microscopic level. But, and we should link to this on the show notes, there are YouTube video tutorials about how you can extract DNA from strawberries. And it's um, it's visible and you end up kind of pulling strings of white gunk that is the strawberry DNA out of this kind of slurry of stuff. How can something... <laughs> This is the problem. How can we see something? Like, how could I see strawberry DNA, but I can't see strawberry it's, it's cells? Because isn't DNA inside the cells? Mm-hmm. I think it's aggregated when you pull it out of the strawberry. I think you're getting clumpage. Because I was really having like a like a real like our cells bigger on the inside kind of thing. Like for the TARDIS cells. For the past, yeah. I don't know, 20 years. Occasionally I would think about this and be like, how is it in there? Why did you not think I was going to ask, can I see DNA? <laughs> I don't think you can with the naked eye. How would you know? How would you not guess that? I'd but be like, can... I saw a photo once and didn't bother reading the caption. <laughs> so it's inside your cells. Okay. So it is smaller than your cells. Okay. It's in the nucleus. All right. Well, I'm glad I, <laughs> at okay. least I cleared that so far. I'm having and a great time with this episode, Anna. I know you're excited. I hope that you're still having a good time. I am. I, I just want to get to chromosomes. Nothing. I'll ask you again at the end of the episode and we'll see where you're at. Do, do you not know nothing? Yes. I don't. I will say. <laughs> I don't not know. Some. Oh, no. Uh, so speaking of chromosomes, which we were, humans have 23 of them, each containing a different portion of our genome with genes all stacked together like beads on a string. And yes, that is where the 23andMe genetic at home kit comes from. Mm-hmm, 23 mm-hmm. chromosomes. So the human genome, and again, this is the genes contained in all humans, 
all of the genetic variation uh, is different from all the genes, right? Because genes code for traits, but what that genetic code actually says and what the outcome of the trait is, is different from the gene itself. So you have genes and then you have, so you have your genotype, which is the actual genetic code that you have. And then you have your phenotype, which is the way that those genetic codes are expressed in your physical traits. And so there can be significant variation in in phenotype. And we'll get into that a little bit. Does the genome show all the options? Like, no, the genome, the genome shows the genes. So it's like, here is this gene, which has this letter and number name, like MTX4. I don't know if that's a real gene. I made that up. And this is the gene that codes for earwax, right? So you have a gene that controls the type of earwax that you have. All humans have a gene that codes for the type of earwax they have. Okay. What that type of earwax actually is can vary. Okay. And so there are alleles, which are variants on a gene. So alleles get slotted into the gene places on your chromosomes, and that determines what your actual physical phenotype is going to be, which alleles you have, which are passed down from your mom and dad. Okay. The human genome contains approximately 3 billion base pairs. And so a base pair is a pair of two of those nitrogen bases. Mm -hmm. Adenine and thiamine are a pair. A only pairs with T. Okay. And the way that I, the mnemonic device that I use is the straight line letters. So uh-huh. if you're making an A, you only oh. use straight lines. If you're making a T, you only use straight lines. And C, cytosine, only pairs with guanine, G. So the curvy letter mm-hmm. pair mm-hmm. and the straight line letter pair. They don't fit together any other way. They're like specialized Legos that only have one corresponding partner Lego that they can slot into. And so those base pairs reside in the 23 pairs of chromosomes within the nucleus of all of our cells. Each chromosome contains hundreds to thousands of genes. So it's a little bundle that has a certain portion of your genes. I still can't see. You still can't see it. Which carry the instructions for making proteins. Each of the estimated 30,000 genes in the human genome makes an average of three proteins. So the number of chromosomes an organism has doesn't really mean anything about its complexity. It actually has more to do with the evolutionary history of the species. For example, Amber, this is fun. Did you know that pigeons have the same number of chromosomes as sugarcane plants? No. And a Tasmanian devil and a cucumber also share the same number of chromosomes, as do mountain gorillas and your garden variety potato. Oh, I didn't know any of this because you sent me that Wikipedia list of like all the yeah, it exists, numbers of chromosomes. Like it by number. It's not comprehensive. It's just like a weird mix of some plants and some animals that have the same numbers of chromosomes. But I didn't but know, I like that it exists. I didn't know any of that because you sent me that like while I was in the middle of a meeting for work and I was really busy and I was like, I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> this is not a potato episode though. It's about humans. So how do we know what we know about the human genome, which it's turning out is for Amber and myself. Not much. So for that, we have the Human Genome Project to thank. Um, So this was an international research project with the goal of identifying and mapping all of the genes, all of them, in the human genome from both a physical and functional standpoint. Um, Otherwise known as, so what does this one do? Yeah. (laughs) What's that one do? Um, What's that one do? And so from the FAQ section of the Human Genome Project's info website, which I feel like there are a lot of frequently asked cues that they're just yeah. like, no. 
I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> the published human genome sequence is derived from the DNA of several volunteers. To ensure that the identities of the volunteers cannot be revealed, a careful process was developed to recruit the volunteers and to collect and maintain the blood samples that were the source of the DNA. The volunteers responded to local public advertisements near the laboratories where the DNA libraries were prepared. (laughs) The first time I read that sentence, like while I was researching this, I misread it and kind of smushed the two lines together. So I read that as the volunteers like responded at their local public libraries. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's not what that says. This is at all. Um, candidates were recruited from a diverse population. The volunteers provided blood samples after being extensively counseled and then giving their informed consent. About five to ten times as many volunteers donated blood as were eventually used so that not even volunteers would know whether their sample was used. All labels were removed from before the actual samples were chosen. Every part of the genome sequenced by the Human Genome Project was made publicly was made public immediately, and new information about the genome is posted almost every day in freely accessible databases or published in scientific journals, which may or may not be freely available to the public. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2013 that naturally occurring human genes are not an invention and therefore cannot be patented, which is good. Yep. So in case you were wondering about that, you can't. And now, predictably, since we're talking about human genetics, it's time for me once again to stand one of my very favorite science writers on this topic and in general, Adam Rutherford. One of the biggest issues He's that comes up. Book. He does. <laughs> but I also read his older ones. One of the biggest issues that comes up in the investigation of the human genome is that if incompletely understood, or deliberately manipulated, information about genetic studies can seem to prop up and push forward ultimately racist ideas. This has become especially rampant now that home DNA kits are available and reasonably affordable. So Rutherford, yes, has a new book out for which we're not we're not getting paid or anything no, for this. Yeah, just, he's just he's just really good at explaining things. Um And so the book is called How to Argue with a Racist, and it is aimed directly at this issue. So I'm going to pull a few choice bits from the book, as well as other bits of his writing that articulate the history of the issue and the reality of what we can know about ourselves from our genes. And he does it far better than I could on my own. So this is from an article in The Guardian. It's not from the book. What? I said I was going to pull from the book and other bits of his writing. Okay. Were you listening? (laughs) Yes. Here's a fun game. If you're a geneticist, Google, quote, scientists discover the gene for dot, 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 and wander through the headlines returned in their millions. A gene for homosexuality, for political bent, for cocaine addiction, for fear, for what time of day you will die, for spree killing evil, for happiness, for brain size. Genetics doesn't work like that. There aren't really any genes for anything. Some diseases do have a single root cause in a single gene, but how that disorder manifests can be highly variable, a genetics concept called penetrance. Inheritance is a game of probability, not of destiny. It's not just the headline writer's fault, though. Science is clearly to blame, too. Recall, if you will, Gregor Mendel and his peas. That 19th century Moravian scientist monk gave us the rules of inheritance by studying individual characteristics in pea plants. He showed that traits, wrinkly skin, flower color, are passed on as discrete units, one from each parent, prefiguring the concept of a gene. 
And he didn't come up with the word gene. He didn't, he called it particles, but um, gene was coined mm. later. Through the 20th century, we beavered away at the laws of inheritance and unraveled DNA and cracked the genetic code. In the 1980s, the first disease genes that we identified were indeed four specific diseases, cystic fibrosis, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Huntington's disease. But 20 years after these revelations in the era of the genome, we know these were outliers. We had characterized them first exactly because they run in families in a straightforward way. So those particular uh, genetic traits are what are called Mendelian or discrete, meaning that they are typically controlled for by a single gene or that variant. So it's passed down in a predictable way. It's not influenced by multiple genes where it starts getting really complicated. Rutherford continues. Most human traits, behaviors, and diseases are complex, with dozens or hundreds of genes playing a small part in concert with the inscrutable milieu in which they operate. So when my personal genome results last week indicated that I have an increased probability of Alzheimer's, I was not in the slightest bit concerned. It's not a sentence or a curse, just a minuscule change in the odds. We must get over this idea that genes determine. We must look at people as beautifully complex and diseases as horribly complex. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Wow. Yeah. I like that. So now we're actually going to read no, from that, how no, to no, argue with a racist. And, and you are specifically. I know. Another idea that we need to be able to divorce from genetics is that of race. Now, listeners, this topic is a giant box to unpack, but the larger topic of race and racism in anthropology is for another episode. And also, like, my text chain with Anna. <laughs> so, in this case, we're just focusing on where DNA fits into the discussion. So, in his new book, How to Argue with a Racist, uh, Rutherford writes, quote, most, though not absolutely all, contemporary geneticists disagree with the idea that genetic variations between traditional racial groupings of people are meaningful in terms of behavior or innate abilities. Yet academic papers continue to be published in which genetic bases for complex traits appear to be stratified by racial lines. As distribution of research is pleasingly easier in the age of the internet, so also is the dissemination of poor arguments and misinterpretation by bad actors. As a result, the nuances of such academic discussions are lost in a mire of angry, scientifically illiterate assertions of tribalism, identity politics, and pure racism disguised as science. Often, these discussions are hampered not just by inexpertise, but by the imprecision of language. Race is a very poorly defined term. Since the 17th century, attempts to categorize people into racial types have resulted in the number of races being anywhere between one and 63. <laughs> Which, like, should tell you about the validity of any such category. Yeah. And I feel like... It like, does. Like, ah, the 63 genders. <laughs> All 63, including horse. <laughs> um, and so this is from a, Nat Geo, uh, a National Geographic interview in 2017 with Adam Rutherford. Yes. I presume. Um, I do quote other people in this episode. I just. <laughs> so after. <laughs> So, uh, where he says, in many ways, genetics makes a mockery of race. The characteristics of normal human variation we use to determine broad social categories of race, such as black, Asian, or white, are mostly things like skin color, morphological features, or hair texture, and those are all biologically encoded. 
But when we look at the full genomes from people all over the world, those differences represent a tiny fraction of the differences between people. There is, for instance, more genetic diversity within Africa than in the rest of the world put together. If you take someone from Ethiopia and someone from the Sudan, they are more likely to be more genetically different from each other than either one of those people is to anyone else on the planet. There's no racial categorization that successfully creates discrete lines between human traits because there are human traits that are not themselves discrete. They're influenced by multiple genes. And so there is a spectrum. And so it's really, really difficult to form categories within a spectrum because they all bleed into each other. Yeah. Yeah. And and also it makes sense, like when you think about like when these categories were uh, developed that they were mm-hmm. developed in a time where the only thing you had to go off was sort of like surface characteristics. Yeah, they, there was um, no genetic information yeah, available. Yeah, when it was just like phenotyping. Um, mm-hmm. So while we mull that over, let's take a quick ad break and then we'll move from our genomes to something a bit older. And I assume during the ad break, I will be <laughs> like kicked out of the Zoom meeting and Adam Rutherford will replace me as co-host. <laughs> so let's all see if that happens. He already has his own podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So we're back. And if you... I am too. Yeah. No, uh, Amber has not been replaced by Adam Rutherford. If you've listened to The Dirt before... Hi, welcome back. Chances are you've heard us mention that Neanderthals and anatomically modern Homo sapiens interbred. We know this because there is some Neanderthal genetic material kicking around in the genomes of some people living today. Not everybody. People with African ancestry are unlikely to have any Neanderthal DNA. And we know that the genetic material in question comes from Neanderthals because we have a draft of the Neanderthal genome, just as we do for humans. It still needs edits. (laughs) <laughs> is it looking for an agent too? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sending out query letters. The numbers associated with reports of Neanderthal DNA in the human genome are confusing. Mm. For example, I mean, they're, they're confusing just in and of themselves, but also <laughs> just the way that they're reported is confusing. Oh, no. So, for example, a National Geographic article that ran in 2016 had the headline, Surprise! 20% of the Neanderthal genome lives on in modern humans, scientists find. 
You also may see that up to 4% of the genome of modern humans of European descent might be derived from Neanderthals, although that figure was revised to 1.5 to 2%. So you can see how confusing this can get. So basically, here's the deal. Throw those numbers out. Start from scratch. Okay. First of all, about 99% or more of the human and Neanderthal genomes overlap. Okay. That has to do with our common ancestry. Of all of the DNA we have, most of it is very similar because in the span of evolutionary time, we split off from a common ancestor with Neanderthals practically an eye blink ago. I mean, to give you some perspective of that, we split off from chimpanzees around six or seven million years ago, and we still share around 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. So it's not saying much. The 4% or more recently, 2% that comes specifically from Neanderthal and human interbreeding means that there are versions of genes that Neanderthals had that were independently evolved and different from the human variants. And so some humans have those variants because somewhere way back in their family history, somebody was a Neanderthal. So specific Neanderthal variants of certain human traits exist in the human genome because there was interbreeding. So besides knowing that, what does it really mean to have Neanderthal DNA? And this is another area where mis- misunderstanding the research can really bring on some misinformation. I know, and I, I chose not to go hunting for them, but I know I've seen clickbaity headlines in the past few years that claim that people might be able to pin anything from depression to gambling habits to freckles to smoking addiction to allergies. on a possible to allergies. To red hair. Neanderthal My therapist has had to hear about every one of these articles. Well, hopefully uh, you can give her some updated information. I'm pulling here from an article published in Science Magazine in 2020 by not Adam Rutherford and Gibbons. <laughs> Okay, that's <laughs> another, yeah, another best in the biz. Yeah, another person coming for my throne. Mm-hmm. So Anne Gibbons writes, If you think you got your freckles, red hair, or even narcolepsy from a Neanderthal in your family tree, think again. <laughs> Sorry, Amber. People around the world do carry traces of Neanderthals in their genomes, but a study of tens of thousands of Icelanders finds their Neanderthal legacy had little or no impact on most of their physical traits or disease risk. Paleogeneticists realized about 10 years ago that most Europeans and Asians inherited 1 to 2% of their genomes from Neanderthals. And Melanesians and Australian Aboriginals get another 3 to 6% of their DNA from Denisovans, Neanderthal cousins who ranged across Asia 50,000 to 200,000 years ago or so. And side note, we have the Denisovan genome as well, sequenced from a tiny nub in a finger bone. Which I, I need to stress, we did not pull it out. Like a no, no, no. You did not pull a tiny filament. No, it was sampled and the DNA was extracted. Because that's what I'm imagining. A steady stream of studies suggested gene variants from these archaic peoples might raise the risk of depression, blood clotting, diabetes, and other disorders in living people. The archaic DNA may also be altering the shape of our skulls, boosting our immune systems, and influencing our eye color, hair color, and sensitivity to the sun, according to scans of genomic and health data in biobanks and medical databases. But the new study, which looked for archaic DNA in living Icelanders, challenges many of those claims. Researchers from Aarhus University in Denmark scanned the full genomes of 27,566 Icelanders in a database at Decode Genetics in Iceland. 
seeking unusual archaic gene variants. So looking for those different genes that may have come from non-homo sapiens. Next, the researchers calculated the association of the Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA with 271 traits. Unlike most previous studies, the team examined whole genomes, which allowed them to evaluate whether modern human genes were also influencing traits. They found that most traits were better explained by association with modern gene variants. Only five traits were notably influenced by archaic DNA. Men with one archaic variant had a slightly reduced chance of prostate cancer, and both men and women carrying two other variants may have reduced height and accelerated blood clotting. Seems helpful. Not necessarily the reduced height, but the other ones. Contrary to previous studies, the researchers found no statistically significant association between archaic DNA and freckles, hair color, eye color, or autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease and lupus. They conclude that Neanderthal DNA only has small effects on complex traits such as height or depression in which many genes interact. Um, and since Gibbons mentioned uh, immune function and skull shape. Mm -hmm. She also kind of says as an aside, the team did not examine immune function or cranial shape for which there is strong evidence of Neanderthal influence. So listeners, no matter what your home DNA kit says, before you decide to attribute any of your own traits to our extinct relatives, just make sure you do a little digging first. And now we're going to dive even further into the refrigerator of human DNA research into the CRISPR drawer. <laughs> so CRISPR is, as you might know so from some ethically dubious research that hit the news in 2019, a means of editing the genome of a living individual. To oversimplify, yep. the process is like old school film editing in which individual genes can be snipped out of DNA like unwanted footage from a movie and just removed or replaced with different genes. So that's what allowed bio that's what allowed scientists to implant bioluminescence DNA from fireflies into mice with the result of glowing mice. So <laughs> as you might expect, <laughs> the research was proof of concept for other applications of gene editing, but hey, bonus glowing mice. And so even more of a bonus, the mice were reportedly fine afterward. Well, we've progressed beyond Dolly the sheep. Um, do you know why she was called Dolly the sheep? The the sheep that was cloned? No. It's because the cells taken to clone were from uh, the sheep's mammary glands. I knew it had she was named for with, Dolly Parton. I knew it had to do something with boobs. I just knew yeah. it. <sighs> Dolly for, Parton is a great her. artist. She's a terrific human being. Yeah. Do you know she wrote Jolene and I, I Will, Will Always, Always Love, Love You, you the on the same yeah, day? Of course I did. Can you imagine? Of course you did. Okay. Let's get back. She's to amazing. It. How does this? Not not Dolly Parton. CRISPR. CRISPR. How does CRISPR help us understand more about our extinct relatives? Because it means we can manipulate human genes, not inside people, by inserting no what? By inserting no Neanderthal or Denisovan variants to see what happens. Yeah. And that is exactly what researchers have done with brains. Brains. Brains emoji. So Researchers have, oh man, every every sentence is like freaking me out more. Um, researchers have created tiny brain-like organoids that contain a gene variant harbored by two extinct human relatives, Neanderthals and Denisovans. The tissues made by engineering human stem cells are far from being true representations of these species' brains. 
but they show distinct differences from human organoids, including size, shape, and texture. The findings could help scientists understand the genetic pathways that allowed human brains to evolve. Yeah, so this research, I mean, it's very sophisticated, but it's still in the stage of like, what's this do? Humans are more closely related to Neanderthals and Denisovans than to any living primate. And some 40% of the Neanderthal genome can be found spread throughout living humans. So some sources report yeah. 20%, some 40%. It's not helpful. It's not his- and I can't find consensus. So, like I can't find any one source that definitively is like, there is 20% of the Neanderthal genome extant in humans or 40%. So going back to Amber's high school days, my trigonometry teacher used had a very precise term that she would use what i think is like a good way to quantify this amount a goodly amount there's a goodly amount of the neanderthal a goodly pinch yeah shout out mm-hmm. to mrs maruka researchers have limited means to study these ancient species brains soft tissue is not well preserved and most studies rely on inspecting the size and shape of fossilized skulls Knowing how the species' genes differ from humans is important because <laughs> it helps researchers to understand what makes humans unique, especially in our brains. So the researchers, led by Alison Muotri, Muotri, yeah, led by Alison Muotri, a neuroscientist at the University of California, San Diego, same place that the Census Bureau was based out of, <laughs> how it's evolved, uh, used the CRISPR. Genome editing technique to introduce the Neanderthal and Denisovan form of a gene called Nova One. See what I mean about letters and numbers? Genes are named things like a smush of letters and numbers. Yep. Into human pluripotent stem cells, which can develop into any cell type. Yep. They culture these to form organoids. Clumps of brain-like tissue up to five millimeters across. Teeny tiny. You could see it. I could see that. You could see it. (laughs) Yep, you can. See that. Half a Um, centimeter. Alongside normal human brain organoids for comparison. It was immediately clear that the organoids expressing the archaic variant of Nova 1 were different. (laughs) Muotri said, quote, as soon as we saw the shape of the organoids, we knew that we were onto something. End quote. Human brain organoids are typically smooth and spherical. We got smooth brains. <laughs> that smooth brain. Uh, smooth brain human. We sure, we sure do. Whereas the ancient gene organoids had rough, complex surfaces and were smaller. This is probably because the differences in how the cells grow and multiply, say the study's authors. The team found 277 genes that had different activity between the ancient gene and human organoids. Some of those genes are known to affect neuronal neuronal, <laughs> yep. neuronal development and connectivity. So how your neurons grow and interact. Wow. Yeah. As a result, the archaic organoids contained different levels of synapse proteins and their neurons fired in less orderly patterns than did those in the human tissues. There is also evidence that they matured more quickly. The neurons themselves? Yeah. They got- that they grew. And so, I mean, they have to form in a certain amount of time. And so they grew and matured and sort of became full, fully formed neurons. Okay. More quickly in the archaic versions. Okay. So yeah. what does this tell us? Mm. It's still unclear. Wolfgang Anard, an evolutionary geneticist at Ludwig Maximilian University in Mute. 
of Munich in Germany said, quote, the most significant finding is that you revert the gene to an ancestral state and you see an effect in the organoid, end quote. He's amazed that such a small genetic difference causes obvious, such obvious changes, but he is skeptical that the organoid's odd appearance tells us much about Neanderthal brains. Yeah, and that's the takeaway, really, is that there is a difference, and that's really cool to know. Yeah. But, you know, ascribing a meaning to that difference yeah. or trying to, like, extrapolate that into cognitive stuff? Nope. Yeah. Nope. Another researcher cautions, it's unlikely that these ancient gene organoids fully represent true Neanderthal tissue. Instead, the characteristics observed could be the result of changing an important protein that is present in humans because of compounding effects of many mutations stacked on top of each other over time. Uh, it's like Jenga, the researcher says. You pull out that amino acid and the brain doesn't function. It may be a bad game of Jenga, but... It's some incredibly cool research that is just beginning to reach its potential to teach us about our own evolution. So let's take another ad break so I can lay down. And <laughs> then we'll finish up with a couple of examples about some real genetic mind benders. And I'm already. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. Amber's back. She's got her thunder shirt on. Still here. And for this last segment, I'm leaving the path that we've been on talking about structural, functional, and evolutionary aspects of DNA. I really just want to tell you some of the incredibly cool and difficult to process case studies that I've come across over the past couple of years so that we can all occasionally remember them, look off into the distance, and have a quiet existential crisis. Great. Yep. All of these case studies, all two of them, I guess there's three revolve around a condition called genetic chimerism. So Amber, do you know what a chimera is? And I'm asking here for both the mythological version and the biological version. Yes. So they I always lean Elaborate, in like I'm like answering a like Senate hearing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the mythological chimera is a creature that consists of a lion, a yeah. thing ding, with ding. wings, yeah, it's got it's got wings question mark. A yeah. Goat? I don't know whose wings. Mm-hmm. And like something serpenty. Yeah. It has a snake tail and also a goat's head coming off it somewhere. But the important thing is a lot of animals smushed, smushed together. Smushed into one. And the biological yeah. version is it's like a liger or a geep, like where you take two species. Is it that? Or is it like David not Bowie? Quite. Neither. David Bowie is not 
a genetic I chimera. Got, he does have two differently colored oh, eyes. Different. One, well, no, it, you can, if you are a genetic chimera, and I'll get into what that is in a sec, you can have two differently colored eyes, but in his specific case, the eye changed pigment color because he got punched oh, in he it had real an hard. accident. Yeah. It's it not, was an injury. Yeah. Okay. So it was the result of an injury, not anything genetic okay. in his case. So biologically, a chimera is essentially a single organism that is made up of cells from two or more individuals. That is, it contains two sets of DNA mm-hmm. and subsequently the code to make two separate organisms. So one way that this can happen naturally in humans is that a fetus can absorb its twin. And this can occur with fraternal twins, especially if one embryo dies very, very early in pregnancy, and then some of its cells are absorbed by the other twin. The remaining fetus will have two sets of cells, its own original set, plus some from the first twin. So I'm going to read you a case study about this that first hit the news in 2018. It's from Live Science. Twins often feel like they have a special connection, but for one California woman, the connection is particularly visceral. She is her own twin. The woman, singer Taylor Mull, possibly Mule, has a condition called chimerism, meaning she has two sets of DNA, each with a genetic code to make a separate person. The rare condition can happen during fetal development. In Mule's case, she had a fraternal twin that she absorbed in the womb. The condition explains why Mule has what appears to be a large birthmark on her torso. One side has a different skin pigmentation color than the other side, the result of her twin's DNA. Um, And Amber, if you click on the Live Science article link there, you can see a picture of, um, it's a selfie that this woman took, and you can see that she does in fact have sort of a very clear demarcation of pigment right down the front of her tummy. Most of the time, people with chimerism, yeah, it's, it's noticeable. Yeah. Most of the time, people with chimerism probably go undiagnosed. Indeed, without specific biomedical tests, like genetic testing, it's impossible for doctors to tell that a patient is a chimera. Uh, This is according to a 2009 paper about that condition. But there may be subtle clues to this condition. Some people might have patchy skin coloration, like Mule does, or different colored eyes. In some cases, chimerism is diagnosed when a person is found to have, and this is wild, two different blood types. Oh my god. That's like not good, right? It's not ideal. No. So this is the case for Mule and then some. She essentially has two bloodstreams and two immune systems, which is not great because the immune system thing, because it's a bit like having an autoimmune disorder because her immune system doesn't recognize the one derived from the twin. So she has a lot of allergies and reactions to things like medications and different foods and stuff. So got a very touchy immune system. (sighs) Yeah. So chimerism has medical implications, but, and this is, this is just such a fascinating case. It can also have really, really fascinating legal implications. So Amber, I present for your consideration the case of Lydia Fairchild. In 2002, a case brought to light a potential problem with the reliability of DNA testing. Lydia Fairchild had separated from her boyfriend and needed to apply for public assistance. As part of this application process, the state of Washington required a DNA test to establish familial relations. That's where things started to go wrong. The DNA test confirmed that Miss Fairchild's boyfriend was, in fact, the father of her two children. However, Fairchild's DNA was not a match. In other words, Lydia was not the genetic mother. Miss Fairchild had carried both of her children to term and knew that she was the biological mother of her children, but the courts disagreed in the face of evidence that told a different story. Can you imagine? 
nightmare. Miss Fairchild had the same obstetrician for the births of all her children. It was like, additionally, uh, (laughs) I know where they came from. (laughs) Her mother had been present for all of the births and could testify that Miss Fairchild was the mother. Like babies came out of her. In light of this testimony and on the off chance of human error in the testing, the court ordered new tests. The results were the same. Miss Fairchild's children were not a genetic match for her DNA. The court declared that the children were not hers. Taylor Mule's case came long after Lydia Fairchild's, but like Taylor, Lydia is essentially her own twin. But chimerism as a human condition wasn't well known or understood at the time. So this was 2002. Fortunately, in a late stage of the court battle, Fairchild's attorney, Alan Tyndall, learned of a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that covered the case of a woman named Karen Keegan, a genetic chimera. The attorney thought that this might be the case with Lydia Fairchild and brought up the journal article as evidence. DNA samples were taken from members of Lydia's extended family. The DNA of Fairchild's children matched that of Fairchild's mother to the extent expected of a grandmother. So the maternal grandmother Mm -hmm. was genetically related to the kids. They also found that although the DNA in Fairchild's skin and hair did not match her children's, the DNA from a cervical smear test did match. Fairchild was carrying two different sets of DNA, the defining characteristic of chimerism. And so after all of that, Lydia Fairchild was granted custody of her children. And this case is a big deal in terms of legal precedent because it calls into question the validity of DNA evidence in custody suits. I'm really glad that the story ended the way it did, not knowing anything about sort of the like situation facing like no, either yeah. pa- like not in a, like the custodial angle but just like it's very scary angle. to me that the court could be like yes we know we see all of this evidence of like affidavits from your doctors your medical records right but like, but photos. ranking genetic ranking dna evidence higher and more meaningful yeah. than those things and, and being like but scary. obviously that's not true like but legally it's not true like that is very scary to me it and is it there is are lots and that's of why ways, this is such an important case yeah, there's lots of ways that like the justice system wherever you live like follows laws not necessarily i don't want to say common sense like not think no, i'm not i'm not making that argument but it, like no, it no, no, but I understand laws. what you mean. it doesn't necessarily follow anything else and so yeah. when like when you're being like law based on science and science changes mm-hmm. oh oh that's really scary that's yeah so and scary. that's why that's why you know laws should never be rigidly absolute they should anyway that's not this podcast so you thought that was wild, yeah. huh? Hold on to your butts, oh, everyone. No. I have one more and it's a doozy. A more common form of chimerism that people may exhibit is called microchimerism, when a small fraction of their cells are from someone else. This can happen a couple different ways. When a person becomes pregnant and a small number of cells from the fetus migrate into their blood and travel to different organs. A 2015 study suggested that this happens in almost all pregnant people, at least temporarily. The researchers tested tissue samples from the kidneys, livers, spleens, lungs, hearts, and brains of 26 women who tragically died while pregnant or within one month of giving birth. The study found that they had fetal cells in all of those tissues. The researchers knew that the cells were from the fetus and not from the mother because the cells contained a Y chromosome found only in biological males, and the women had all been carrying sons. So pregnancy can change your DNA. Oh my God. Yeah. 
So this can also happen, just one more case where this can happen, after a bone marrow transplant. So bone marrow is incredibly important because it's where your body makes blood cells. So for a marrow transplant, doctors use radiation therapy to destroy any diseased marrow and then implant marrow from a donor. But that marrow keeps making blood cells because that's its job and it has the donor's DNA. So the blood cells that it makes will also have the donor's DNA. And that's and that works out okay? Yeah, so the DNA isn't the issue. Like blood type is an issue. Right. Okay. Because it has to do with your body reacting to antigens. And so the the example above of the woman who has two different, like basically has like two sets of blood in her. She like, has like two circulatory systems, which I cannot visualize. I don't think they're two complete circulatory systems, but basically, yeah, she has two, yeah, two blood types. I bet one of them's O because that one's the neutral one. Like O okay. goes with, okay. O doesn't cause any... Um, antigen reactions because that's because that that be, that can become a problem for like pregnant people if the the fetus has a different blood type it can like it get it can get weird the the thing that I know about is the Rh factor yeah which is okay. a different that's the plus or minus so if you're like a yeah. b positive it's the positive or the negative okay. so if you're positive it means that you do have this Rh protein. If you're negative, you don't have it. And very early on in the pregnancy, doctors can test for whether the fetus has the same um, RH type as the mother. And if not, you can put the mom on immunosuppressants. And that stops the reaction, I believe. It is not a medical doctor. So I know I keep, (laughs) I feel like it's become, it's like a recurring fit for me to to like take my medical problems to you and for you to be like, no. Um, Not qualified in any way. I was just thinking (laughs) today today when I was at the grocery store, I was just thinking about the um, child free subreddit. Not that I'm a part of it or that I think that people like those people suck. Like they're like not nice people. This is not anything I know about. And please don't introduce me to it. Oh, no. So the the child free like subreddit and child free movement is like people who are like antinatalist but they're not antinatalist in a like philosophical sense they're antinatalist in a like like people shouldn't have kids yeah they talk about like breeders oh. and like crotch fruit oh. so rather than children oh, gross. yeah it's just like this but they're but, like that phrase. but they're just sort of like people who are just like inconvenienced they think that like children should be banned from restaurants like not people that are like ah the population and like ethics okay there is <laughs> listeners as you may have guessed so much more so to much. learn about DNA, things that are already published, things that are yet to be determined, because genetics is a discipline still in its infancy. So it is exciting and overwhelming, mm-hmm. mostly overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But listeners, we hope that this has been an enlightening episode that has made you want to know more. Um, yeah. And if you do want to know more, check out Carl Zimmer's She Has Her Mother's Laugh or Anything by Adam Rutherford (laughs) Uh, or any of the articles that we've linked in the show notes. Yep. And thank you, as always, for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with more episodes. March is going to be really fun. I'm so stoked for our production schedule for March. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, which you can find, as usual, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. You can also find us on social media. So over on Facebook, we're The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that, plus merch, archived episodes, and ways to support the show are on our website, thedirtpod.com. 
Thanks, everyone. We go love watch, you. Go watch that video. TRNA. Woo! This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.